All right, James chapter number 3, verse number 1. Uh, James says this, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which, though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father. And therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Now, what this was going to be was part of a, a larger theme, and, and we'll take up the rest of it next week. Uh, but we've gone through, we've looked at the, you know, the Christian and, and his behavior, the Christian and his brethren, several other themes. And tonight, James deals with the Christian and his behavior. And he deals with sin in three particular places. He talks about sin in the mouth, and that's what we're going to focus on this evening. Next week, we'll pick up this theme and look at sin in the mind. And then uh, finally, he'll deal with sin in the members. But the theme of this portion of chapter number three is, of course, the tongue. Uh, I'd remind you once again that James's perspective on Christianity was very rudimentary. When James wrote this epistle, it was the first of the New Testament books that was pinned down. When he uh, wrote the epistle of James, uh, the church was primarily a Jewish matter. The vast majority of people that were saved were Jews, and uh, it, that, that's betrayed by the fact that he even uses, when he says in chapter number 2, if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, that word for assembly is the same word used throughout the New Testament for the word synagogue. So when he talked about the, the church and the meeting together of the church, he even used that terminology, synagogue. Uh, whenever James wrote this epistle, the term Christian was not even in the common vernacular nomenclature. Uh, it wasn't until Acts chapter number 11 that they were called Christians first at Antioch. So if we, if we want to uh, peg the writing of the book of James, and this is the only bit of review that I'm going to do, if we wanted to peg the book of James, in, in chrono- chronologically speaking, historically speaking, it appears to be sometime after Acts chapter number 8 and verse number 4. Uh, that was whenever the... Uh, Believers at Jerusalem uh, fell under great persecution and were scattered. They went everywhere preaching. Uh, I was seeing a fellow post the other day on uh, Facebook. Uh, He was talking about the book of James, and uh, he said that the book of James, actually he said that all the general epistles are tribulation uh, doctrine, that it's not meant for the church in this dispensation. And one of the proofs that he gave of that is he said, well, the book of James is written to the 12 tribes, so it must be talking about the tribulation period. But the problem is, during the great tribulation, those tribes are not going to be scattered. 
When James wrote his epistle, he wrote it to the twelve tribes that were scattered. In fact, it is only during the captivity, which was long before James wrote his epistle, and during the church age that the Jews have been scattered in that manner. During the tribulation, they'll be gathered back into the land. And so... The book of James was written uh, after that scattering took place in chapter number 8, verse number 4. But it would appear sometime before uh, Paul wrote uh, his epistles. And the reason we believe that is because there is no trace of Pauline doctrine. And I'm careful how I say that. It's God's doctrine. It's the Holy Ghost. Amen. It's the Word of God. But we find none of the themes and ideas that that continually present themselves in the Pauline epistles anywhere in the book of James. And, and of course, James and Paul knew each other. Uh, They had interactions one with another. I think it's safe to say that if Paul had written his epistles when James was writing this epistle, probably there would have been, if not a direct mention made of Paul, like there was in the uh, book of Second Peter. You know, Peter talked about that Paul had many things that are hard to be understood that he had written. Uh, if not a direct reference to Paul, then certainly some of those themes would have popped up uh, in the book of James as they were common throughout the church during Paul's life. So I, I don't think we can say it was written as late as the Pauline epistles. I don't think we can say it was written any earlier than Acts chapter number 8 and verse number 4. So that gives us a time frame. James would have viewed believers as completed Jews. Uh, in his in his mind, there were there were two types of people uh, that had some semblance of a of a dealing with God. There were Jews that had rejected the Messiah and Jews that had received the Messiah. And it was to this latter group that James was writing his epistle. Uh, his theme is basically that our, our belief should behave. We should have a faith that works, not faith and works, but a faith that works. So it should be no surprise to us. That when we think about how our relationship with God informs and molds and shapes our behavior in the world, that one of the first things that James would talk about is the tongue, the mouth, our language, what we do with the spoken word. So I want you to notice tonight a a few things. There's actually two great thoughts. He gives first off a word about teachers in the first uh, verse, and then he talks about the tongue. Verse number one, he says this, My brethren, be not many masters knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, the term master here literally means a teacher, an instructor. And the first thing that he gives is a word of caution. And he says, listen, don't be the type of, and I think he's writing this to church bodies, but I think he's also writing this to the individual believer. And as he's speaking to a church, I think he's saying, don't be a church that has a plethora of people that are standing in that position and can give doctrine that can confuse. I was talking to somebody one day, it might have been in Sunday school when we was teaching through the book of Romans, and uh, one of the things I strive for in our church is I don't require a uniformity of thought. Uh, listen, if you're a member of Walridge Baptist Church and you disagree with me about something, I don't hate you. I'm not against you. I'm not your enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that I condone or believe what you believe. But I don't think it's healthy to try to develop through a cult of personality a uniformity of thought in the church. And there are a lot of churches that are that way where uh, the only way you can disagree with the pastor about anything is if it's on your way out the door. Amen. I don't think that's healthy. But there is a flip side to that, which is this. I don't think we should, uh, just as we should not demand a uniformity of thought, we should should allow people to be individuals. Uh, We also should not promote a diversity of preaching or teaching or of various doctrinal views and positions from the pulpit. 
There should be a unity, a harmony, a uniformity of truth presented from the pulpit. There are churches today that will bring people in from all various denominations and belief systems because they want to have their, their mind broadened and be enlightened and hear the other side. Well, listen, when you have the truth, you don't need the other side because the other side is a lie. That may seem like an absolutist statement. And listen, I wouldn't, if it was a matter of personal opinion or of, of personal preference, then I sure wouldn't have the boldness to make that statement. Amen? But when it comes to the matter of the truth of the Word of God, if we have the truth of the Word of God, we don't need to have our mind open to other viewpoints and thoughts. We ought to stand on the pillar and ground of the truth. So I think there's an application to the local church here. But I think there's also an application to the local church member. Because he says, be not many masters. Don't be many teachers. And there's a way, I, I was talking to somebody one day, and this is, this is the, the Toby Weber explanation of that. Are you ready? Don't be a know-it-all. Don't be everybody's boss. Don't constantly be running around telling and micromanaging every single facet of people's lives. Don't, it got real quiet in here. Did you notice that? Oh, boy, I don't know what you're thinking. don't really matter to me, but I, I don't know what you're thinking. In other words, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble if I don't hurry past this. Uh, he says, don't, don't multiply teaching. Don't, don't be everyone's master. Don't constantly, you know, we live, the, the day of social media that we live in has cultivated us into believing we have to have an opinion about everything. Can I tell you something that you probably haven't heard in a while, but that all of us, me first and foremost, needs to hear? Not everybody cares about our opinion. Not everybody needs our opinion on everything all the time. And we do live in a society where, you know, you're expected any news event. Hey, listen, a, a, a frog kills over dead in Mozambique and we've got to have an opinion about it. And I think that's what is causing and driving a lot of the division culturally in our society, but also uh, even in local churches, is that there's this notion that uh, we have to have an opinion and inform everybody else of our opinion of all things at all times. The fact of the matter is, as a believer, as a Christian, there's going to be plenty of times where you are going to be, by the, by the authority of God's Word, compelled to stand upon a matter. And so cherish dearly those opportunities but also be willing to let other opportunities pass by where you could voice an opinion, where you could give your perspective, but where it may not be uh, helpful, where it may not be informative, where it may not be conducive uh, to the furtherance of the conversation. James says, and by the way, he knew something about this because he was used to the life of, of a synagogue goer. In the, in the ancient synagogue, uh, they had an open forum. And at that, in any synagogue, anybody can walk up, pick a corner of the synagogue, and, and go in there and stand and teach at any time. And no doubt this brought about a lot of good teaching. The Lord and his disciples used this to their advantage many times. But you see these hints all through the Word of God of times when people were led astray. When he'll talk about uh, Judas and his followers, not Iscariot, but another Judas. And he'll talk about various people in the synagogue that rose up and led people astray because of that open forum. The fact is, there is such a thing. I know this runs so in the face of, of where we're at socially and culturally today. But there is such a thing as too much information. You don't believe that? Try Googling something. There is such thing as too much information. And as believers, we are going to be compelled to have to stand on, on truth about some things. And we understand that. In many things, we offend all. We offend all. 
You understand that as a believer, you are just by, by, by den of the fact, by virtue of the fact that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God and an earthly representative of Jesus Christ, you're already going to be running in direct contravention to the winds of this world. As you interact with your co-workers, with your friends, with your neighbors, there's going to be plenty of times when you're going to have to already say, I'm sorry, I'm a Christian, I don't do that. Or I'm sorry, listen, I'm a Christian, can you not use that language around me? So maybe it'd be good if you didn't go across your neighbor's yard and say, excuse me, can I show you how to mow your yard better? Maybe it would be good if we didn't say, hey, won't you do something about your hair? Won't you change your clothes? Why don't you this, that, or the other? We're not talking about matters of modesty. We're talking about matters of personal preference. And as believers, and and I need to realize this as a parent, because I'm going to be in the same shoes that a lot of parents are one day, especially as your kids grow up. And, you know, you never quit having an opinion about everything that your kids do. When your kids are little, you care about everything they do. I I remember not having kids and people walking up to me and saying, oh, let me tell you what my child did. And just genuinely thinking, why would I care what your child did? I could care less. Oh, he threw up? That's great. I I don't care. He said something funny? That's, That's great. And, you know, as a parent, you care about everything that your kids do. You care about what they do, how they do it. And we need to recognize that information and instruction is a commodity. What happens to the dollar if they just go printing it like crazy? It devalues it, doesn't it? We've experienced that. In Venezuela right now, uh, this was actually several several months ago, their economy has completely collapsed. Because guess what? The government doesn't do a better job with people's money than they do with their money. Basic fundamental principle of life. There's your civics lesson. Everything the government does, it does terribly. Okay? So as little as we can let the government do as a free people, the better off we are. And in Venezuela, this was uh, several months ago, maybe a year ago, People were having to carry around duffel bags full of cash to buy a loaf of bread because their currency had devalued to such a degree. If you want your words and your wisdom to carry more weight with your children, then treat it like that dollar and don't let the printing press overheat. Don't, don't be a master in everything. And as a believer, if we want our word to hold sway with lost individuals and loved ones and, and coworkers and people that we're trying to share the gospel of Christ with, then maybe we should reserve incidental and non-essential opinions about things because we're already going to be an offense to them when we say, hey, listen, do you know where you're going when you die? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven? Your baptism's not enough. Your church member's not enough. We're already going to be offending in that. So why bring upon ourselves a, 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 a plethora, an abundance of offense in matters that we don't have to? James says, don't, don't be many masters. Be not many masters. Why? He gives a word of condemnation. He says that we shall receive the greater condemnation. You know who gets no mercy when they're wrong? People that believe they're right all the time. I, I, I don't know if you'll agree with this or not. I don't know if you're truthful enough to agree with it. I hope you are. But there's a little part of every human being that rejoices when a know-it-all is proven wrong. Isn't there? When somebody that, man, they act like they know everything, and they're shown that they were wrong, there's a little part of you that goes, yeah. You know who gets no mercy when they're wrong? People that act like they're right all the time. But let me even go a step further than that. And let me say this, that 
When we choose to use our words constantly to offer opinion on every matter, and listen, you ain't the choir tonight, I'm the choir tonight that I'm preaching to, all right? Uh, when, when we do this, I believe, you know, the Bible says we're going to give an account for every word, every idle word. One day we're going to stand before God. You better make sure those opinions are right, because one day you're going to give an account for it. Well, that was fun, wasn't it? Let's move on. We see a word about about teachers, but then we see a word about the tongue, and this is going to be the bulk of our lesson tonight. So the first thing that James does when he undertakes, and, and it's a beautiful segue, isn't it? He, he's been talking about faith and works. He's been talking about how that works are the expression of true biblical faith. And then he turns immediately to the matter of how we use our our words, how we use our advice, our counsel, what we do with our tongue. And he presents first off a divine standard relating to this. Look what it says in verse number two. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. The most impressive, the most spiritually impressive thing that a believer can do is control his own tongue. The most spiritually impressive thing that a church member can do is control their words. And he's going to go about and give us four illustrations uh, of, of why this is so and why it is so difficult. And isn't it difficult to keep our mouth under control? Can anybody witness to that? Hey, I'll say it even if you won't. It is difficult to keep our tongue under control. Uh, we, we Listen, we can keep a lot of things under control when we can't keep our own mouth under control. And that's no surprise. He gives us four illustrations concerning this. Well, more than four illustrations, but, but he, he, he shows four truths about the tongue. The first thing he shows us is the unbridled tongue. He says, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. Even so, so he's given two illustrations, then he says, even so, this is his application, even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. The first truth that he gives us when he talks about the unbridled tongue deals with the power of the tongue. And he gives us first an illustration from nature, and that illustration is that of a horse. When Even today, a horse is the metric by which we measure raw power. Uh, every single vehicle that rolls off the line everywhere in the world has a ranking called horsepower. Because for years and years and years, the horse has been the engine of industry and the engine of power and the movement of civilization. Uh, it, 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 there's been times, I, I've seen them, I know you have too, on TV, they'll have those big Clydesdales. And man, they're just mountainous. And they'll have competitions where they pull big heavy objects and, you know, boat anchors and tractors and stuff like that. And those Clydesdales, you can see just the muscles rippling all over their body, just the raw power that those animals have. When you're around a horse in person, you know what you realize? They're about 2% bone, 3% organ, and 95% muscle. And yet they're turned about with a little piece of metal stuck in their mouth. He says, this is how the human body is. That just as that horse can be harnessed to great destruction or to great benefit, 
And it's all dependent on what takes place with that little bit that's in its mouth and the bridle that's upon it. That's how the mouth is. That's how the tongue is for the human body and for the human behavior. Somebody much smaller than a horse that has that, that if it was a matter of putting up their raw physical strength against the horse's raw physical strength would be absolutely no match whatsoever. In fact, you can take a team of horses that combined would be enough to pull a house down and put one little scrawny person, Festus, up on the on the wagon bench, and with those reins he can direct and move that entire team of horses. In the same way, how we talk, what we say, how we communicate is the great deciding factor for where the energy of our life is invested. We do more through what we say than we ever do through what we do. Think about throughout human history. And one simple example, you think about uh, World War II, and you think about the millions upon millions of people that died as a result of the Nazi Reich. Millions upon millions of people died. And it all began with one man's words. As he stood up and pounded the pulpit and whipped people into a frenzy and motivated them to do unholy, ungodly, unspeakable things. Had Hitler not been the orator that he was, he could have never done that. You talk about the Soviet Union. You talk about the words that Karl Marx wrote that Vladimir Lenin then picked up and used to drive the revolution that then Stalin picked up and used to rule with an iron fist behind the Iron Curtain. And, by the way, communism killed far more people. Russia killed far more people than Germany ever did. Communism as an ideology killed far more people. I'm no apologist for fascism. I'm against fascism. You know that left-wing socialist doctrine, fascism, right? Because Mussolini was a socialist up until he turned into a fascist. And fascism is nothing but a nationalized version of socialism. And that's what Hitler was, a national socialist, that left-wing doctrine. I'm against fascism in every way, shape, fashion, and form. But communism killed far more people than fascism could have ever dreamed. Paul Pot's killing fields and the starvation campaigns of Stalin killed millions upon millions more than the Third Reich could have ever dreamed of killing. And it all began with words. Words have a powerful effect. And I think rarely do we apply and, and appreciate the, the power that words have. Uh, not only does he give us an illustration from nature, but he gives us an illustration from navigation. Uh, he says in verse number four, Behold also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listed. The commentator told the story of the uh, Nazi warship, the Bismarck. And how that during World War II, the Bismarck laid waste to several of Britain's great warships and really crippled them. And there was a good chance the war could have changed completely in one day based upon the Bismarck laying waste. Laid waste to the two greatest warships that uh, that Britain had at the time. I can't remember the names of them, but laid waste to them and was on its way to destroy the rest of Britain's fleet. And Britain sent out several smaller warships and an aircraft car- carrier and, a, uh, and another ship called the King George V after the Bismarck. And uh, they're just about 20 miles off the coast of France. They engaged in battle. And the King George V only got one torpedo off. But that torpedo took out the helm, the rudder of the Bismarck. 
And when it did, this great Nazi warship, brand new, state-of-the-art, had absolutely decimated the Royal Navy, was rendered completely helpless. And all he could do was just spin in the water. This great ship that had laid waste to what was inarguably the greatest navy in the world at the time was completely rendered ineffective because the helm was disengaged and was destroyed. You see these great cruise ships and people with more money than me have probably been on them. I never have. Amen. But uh, you see these great cruise ships, man. I mean, it's, it's like it, it, it's like a, a resort floating across the water. I mean, it's it, it's breathtaking when you see the magnitude of them. They got bowling alleys and swimming pools and rock climbing and all kinds of craziness on these things, shopping malls on them. But that ship is directed. It's driven by a powerful engine. But the engine is not the thing that gives it direction. It gives it force. It gives it movement. The thing that determines where it goes and what it does is that rudder and that helm that turns it about whithersoever it listeth. In the same way, all of the human capacity for energy is harnessed into what we do with our words. Again, I would hearken back to the illustration about Hitler and about Stalin, about any number of other despots and dictators throughout human history. It was not their their force of will that drove their movements. It was their words. Their ability to inspire men to evil and wicked things. Your mouth and your words are a powerful thing. They are far more powerful than the money in your wallet. They are far more powerful than the reputation that you have. What you say, the Bible says that a word fitly spoken is like uh, apples of gold in frames of silver. It is a powerful thing how we use our words, and we shouldn't take it lightly. We shouldn't take it lightly. He speaks first of the unbridled tongue, and then he speaks of the untrammeled tongue. And I think here he's illustrating the potential that the tongue has. He says this, verse number 5, Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The commentator, I couldn't find any support for this, but I think there is a thought in this passage, an application that could be made. The commentator said that that word for great is connected to the idea of a great forest. Uh, It does certainly mean things that are very vast and tall. But I think regardless of whether there's any connection to those two ideas, I think an application can be made to that. Right now we're seeing uh, California dealing with wildfire. I mean, every time you turn on the TV, there's some, you know, 400-acre wildfire out there that is uh, devastating the countryside. And imagine that every one of those fires, when we went out to Yellowstone last year, there was a great fire back in the 80s that consumed about 30% of Yellowstone's forestry and when you drive through there were certain parts of the park that you drive through and 30 years later you still see the scorch marks and the and the burnt uh you know residue of what was left over from that great fire all these great fires the fire that destroyed rome the fire that raged in chicago in the uh early 1900s or late 1800s the fire that tore through london laying it low every one of them was started with one small spark let me tell you something your words can get out of hand in a hurry. In a hurry. There's an illustration told, I thought this was pretty good, about uh, four fellas, and they decided they were going to, for whatever reason, go into sort of a secret pact one with another. And they committed that every one of them was going to reveal their deepest, darkest secret that they held close that they'd never told anybody in their life. And so the first guy goes and, and he says, listen, nobody knows this, but um, I struggle with kleptomania. I'm a thief. I'll steal anything that's not nailed down. I, it doesn't even have to be valuable to me. But everywhere I go, I, try, I grab things. I stuff them in my pocket. I just get a thrill out of stealing things. 
the second guy spoke up and he said, well, you know, I've hid it from my family. I've hid it from my, my boss and my coworkers, but my big secret is I'm a drunk. I can't stay away from drink and I, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I'll be gone for days on end, just drunk out of my mind. And the third guy spoke up and he said, now listen, you can never let this go any farther because nobody knows about it but me and a few other people in this world. But I struggle with lust. He said, I've been unfaithful to my wife for years and had all sorts of torrid affairs. Uh, you know, please don't tell her. It'll ruin my life. The fourth guy spoke up and he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a, I've never stolen anything in my life. Uh, he said, I've never touched a drop of liquor. I'm, I'm not an alcoholic and said, I've always been faithful to my wife. He said, but I am a terrible gossip and I cannot wait to get out of here. <laughs> Hey, listen, what we say can go a lot farther than, than what we think it will. Our words are like bread cast upon waters. Uh, it's like things that you cast. The writer of Proverbs said it's like things that are cast, that our words are spoken into the wind. You can't scoop them back up. You can't get them back. So we better treat carefully what we say. He says, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And then he gives four truths concerning it. Verse number six he speaks first of how decadent he is. He says the tongue is a fire. That's what it is. It kindles things. And let me remind you that fire can be used for great creative capacity and great destructive capacity. There are places in the country and, and forests where that's part of the way that they grow things. And that's how part of the way that they develop and maintain and, and nourish the ecosystem is by setting a, a guarded and controlled fire to burn over the land to allow room for new growth. By the same token, that fire, if it's set in the wrong place, can literally destroy lives and homes and, and kill people. The tongue has great, great potential. It is a fire. And he says this about it. First, he says it's a world of iniquity. Now, these words are very familiar to us. They're not anything uh, that, that will surprise us. The word for world is the word cosmos. Uh, the idea behind it is the totality of things. The term cosmos is the same when, when the Bible talks about God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, in fact, there's only really two words in uh, Greek words used in your Bible that denote the idea of world. One is eon and one is cosmos. Sometimes it has the idea of an age or a period of time, and other times it's talking about physical creation. And that's what the word cosmos means. So in other words, he's saying that the tongue is a, a world, a cosmos, a universe of iniquity. We could almost make this application and say it this way, that in many ways all the iniquity in the world is rooted in the tongue. And it is. The first time that Satan ever spoke, he spoke a lie. And all of mankind's depravity began through the spoken word. He said, yea, hath God said. God gave a commandment. God expressed and revealed truth to mankind. And the first thing Satan did was come along and speak a lie. And man picked up right there. Adam believed the lie or Eve believed the lie and ate of the fruit gave to her husband Adam. And as soon as they're found out, what do they start doing? Eve turns and blames it on Adam. Uh, and, and Adam turns and blames it on the serpent and on God. And the serpent, of course, you know, he, 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 blame, he takes the blame, I guess would be the way to say it. In other words, the first sin that man ever committed was connected to the spoken word. And all of the sin that has resulted throughout human history has resulted because a lie was spoken, a lie was believed, and a lie was communicated. Eve heard a lie, Eve believed a lie, Eve told a lie. Adam did the very same thing. 
all of the sin of the world can be wrapped up and expressed and experienced through the tongue. And you can go throughout human history and see time and time again. I won't take the time to do it, but you can see time and time again this principle, this truth expressed. So he speaks about how decadent it is. Second, he speaks about how defiling it is. He says, it defileth the whole body. The whole body. Uh, The term defile means to stain something. To stain something. Uh, If you had a fresh piece of paper... And you had an ink blot right in the middle of it. And there's a lot of good paper around it, but you won't use it because of that ink blot that's right in the middle of it. And you know what I thought of? I thought about young people in particular, but really anybody in life. Have you ever seen somebody, young man, young lady, they seem to be real clean cut. They seem to have their life together. They had, you know, physical beauty and and well-spoken, but they cursed. And all your attention could be drawn to was the foul language that they used. Your entire opinion is colored by the language that they're using. There's no doubt been a lot of people throughout uh, humankind and human history that have went for a job interview and been purely qualified and, and been presentable in every way, shape, fashion, and form, but because of the language that they use, they never got hired. No doubt many times when someone's been picking out a spouse and everything about their life seemed to line up and, and be potential uh, to marry them, but because of the lies that they spoke, they just could not be trusted. The tongue has the ability to defile and shape and mark and characterize and define who we are. So we better use it carefully. You know what I found? If somebody tells me a lie, I tend to never believe anything else that they say fully again. They might speak 99% truth to me, but if I find out that they've lied to me one time, even when they're speaking truth, even if I grow to trust them again in some semblance, that thing will always be in my mind that they lied to me. The tongue has the capacity to defile the whole body. And then he speaks of how destructive it is. And I jotted this down beside it, how disruptive it is. And here's the reason I jotted that down. He says that it setteth on fire the course of nature. The idea behind this is a wheel. And I know that seems odd uh, when we first hear it, but when it talks about the course of nature, the word for nature is the word Genesis, the word for course has the idea of a wheel behind it. And it deals with the idea of the wheel of life, the trajectory of life, the rhythm and balance and harmony that life can enjoy if it is walked in truth and wisdom is disrupted when the, the tongue is not controlled. Listen, you can have a lot of things going for you in life, but if you can't control your tongue, it can all be messed up in a heartbeat and in a hurry. I've known people in life and still know people in life that lie just to lie. I, I remember I was talking to somebody one day, and they they told me something. I and I, I won't reveal all the details of it, but I, I was talking to them, and uh, and they they just made an offhand statement. They said, "Oh yeah, this is so," and I knew it wasn't so. I looked at them and said, "That's not so," and they said, "Yeah, you're right. It's not." <laughs> I thought, man, if you're going to lie, at least commit to it. Amen. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. You know, but. I've known people in life that because sometimes of a temper and the way that they spoke to people, sometimes through foul language, sometimes through dishonesty, for whatever reason, the trajectory of their life was disrupted because they could not control your tongue. Here's what I'm trying to get across to you, is that if you don't guard carefully your words, you can make a whole world of trouble for yourself and for others and for others. That's James' great theme here is that the 
The tongue has great potential to do great things and to do destructive things. It can do wonderful things. It can do awful things. We need to respect the words we use, what we say to people, how often we say things to people, and the nature of what we say. He speaks of how destructive it is. Then, I thought this was interesting. He says at the end of verse number 6, it is set on fire of hell. It's devilish in its nature. The tongue is one of the first parts of your being that Satan will try to co-opt to use for his purposes. And you know why? Because sometimes things that are spoken inadvertently, in, in casual negligence, can do great, great harm to people. can't tell you the numbers of times that people have come to me troubled and burdened and upset because of something that somebody said just casually. And I've told them, well, they probably didn't mean anything by it. I'm sure there was nothing behind it. And very often, if I ever talk to that person about it, they'd say, oh, I preach, I didn't mean anything by that. I wasn't trying to say that to them. But even things that are casually spoken, we need to treat the words that come out of our mouth better than we treat the dollars that sit in our billfold or our purse because they can do great damage even inadvertently. Satan will use the things you say to hurt others greatly, to mislead others profoundly. We need to be careful with what we say to people and how we say it, because you might not mean anything by it. But guess what? If there's anything we've learned about the culture that we live in today, you don't have to mean anything by it for people to take offense at it. I remember years ago, used to take when I was a youth pastor, take the kids to a Christian camp up in Kentucky, and one of the things that uh, the camp director would always do, uh, most of the camp workers, he had some people on staff there, but mostly it was the, the workers that had brought kids up that they sort of used as workers. And uh, they would rely a lot on us youth pastors and youth workers to, uh, to help them throughout the week. And so he would always have a meeting with us, and, uh, and he would go over a few rules. And one of the things that I remember him saying to us, he said, always be careful in how you interact with the kids. Never get yourself in a room alone with a kid. Uh, if, if you take pictures as far as like, you know, in, in the cabin of, of whatever, you know, memories and momentous, be careful, make sure there's nobody in the background to indecently dressed or anything like that. He said, always be very circumspect. And this is what he said. It's always stuck with me. He said, they don't have to tell the truth to ruin your life. And in that same vein, you might have not meant anything by what you said. But that doesn't make it any less destructive. And you say, well, preacher, I can't help if people are going to be offended. Well, it's true and it's not. It is true that you can't help ultimately the way that people perceive and receive the things that you say. But here's how you can help it. By being very circumspect in how you communicate with people. By being sensitive, by being diligent, by being compassionate, by trying to go out of your way. Here needs to be the governing rule of your communication with people. Can this be taken the wrong way? Can this be taken the wrong way? Another symptom of the culture and society that we live in today is we communicate a lot. Uh, you know, I've often thought about two things about the society we live in today. One, we are the most photographed civilization, society in all of human history. There are more photographs today than there ever have been. My wife, every, I don't know, like two days will clean off her phone and take millions of pictures off of it. And they're all of our kids. <laughs> but we're never going to forget what our kids look like, amen? Well, we'd probably, if we had the money to, we'd probably print them all out and make a flip book of their entire existence. But uh, the other thing is that we are, have never lived in as documented a society as far as our communication as we do today. You hear it all the time when people talk about the way that you are on social media, that anything you put out there, it's out there forever. Forever. 
Well, the fact is, even in the spoken word, when we say things, it's out there and we cannot take it back. So we better treat it carefully. We better treat it carefully. So he mentions how devilish it is. The devil can use the things that we say uh, for his purposes, for his will. Then look at verse number 7. He gives us another illustration, and it's of the untamed tongue. So if the unbridled tongue speaks of the power of the tongue, and the untrammeled tongue speaks of the potential of the tongue, then I think the untamed tongue speaks of the passions of the tongue, of the spoken word. He says, every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. Now, that's just a basic on-the-face truth that I think nobody can deny. We talk about beasts. We could talk about dogs and, and cats. Uh, I was going to say something ugly about cats, but I won't. Um, we talk about dogs and cats and, and horses and beasts of burden that have been tamed. When we talk about birds, uh, you can go to the zoo and see them do the, you know, uh, the, the shows, the demonstrations with the birds where they have them fly all over the place, fly right back to them. Of course, carrier pigeons and, and hunting falcons are illustrations of that. Uh, serpents are the same way. I know you don't like to think of serpents being domesticated, but certainly there are weird people in the world that keep them in big glass boxes in their house and take them out and pet them and so on and so forth. All kinds of deranged behavior. And, uh, and things in the sea. You say, well, what have we tamed of the things in the sea? We'll go to SeaWorld. Man, they got dolphins that'll talk to you. Plainer than a two-year-old. And they got whales that'll jump up out of the water and do backflips. Every kind of beast man has been able to tame. But there is something we've not been able to tame. He says, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. He speaks of the tongue and its disloyalty. The tongue is an unpredictable thing, isn't it? Try as you may to be careful with what you say. You'll find that there is always the propensity to mouth off. Get in traffic sometime. Get in traffic sometime. Everybody's an idiot and a jerk and a moron. Maybe that's just me. You're more spiritual than me, I guess. That's exactly right. If it could happen, that's where it would happen. I don't feel very sanctified when I'm driving down the road. I found this to be the case, that anybody that is in front of me is a slowpoke, and anybody that is behind me is a madman. And that's exactly right, Kathy. They are. You know, try as we may, we struggle. How often have you said to yourself, I've had illustrations, and I won't share it, but I've had times in my life where I have literally been having an internal monologue with myself saying, don't say this, don't say this, Toby, don't say this, don't say it that way, and I said it. It's an unruly thing, but not only, and he says it this way, I I wasn't going to say it this way because I just don't like this word, but he says how pugnacious it is, and that ain't got nothing to do with your puppy dog. But then he says how poisonous it is. He says it's full of deadly poison. The tongue can kill a lot of things. Hey, a a grumbling and griping tongue can kill a marriage. A grumbling and griping tongue can kill a church. A grumbling and griping tongue can make a, a workplace a place of misery. The tongue has the capacity and the poison to destroy anything that it touches if it's used for the devil's purposes. Then he speaks of the tongue in its dichotomy. He says this, Therewith bless we God, 
even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. The same mouth that we use, that same one that was singing along with that gospel song in the car, is the same one that's cussing that guy that cuts you off. It's the same tongue and the same mind and heart and will that's attached to it. He speaks of its ability to bless God, and he speaks of its ability to berate man. You say, well, preacher, what should that do? It should give us a holy fear for how we use our words, that it could turn on a dime that quickly, that quickly. I was uh, <laughs> I was uh, seeing something the other day where, well, I won't tell that. Yeah, I got time. I'll go ahead and tell that. I, I was see, you know this autocorrect that we have on the phones, right? Where you'll type something in, text message, and all of a sudden it'll change. And uh, I, I saw this one the other day where a fella, his wife had sent him a picture. She was trying on a dress, and she sent him a picture and said, Honey, does this make me look fat? And he typed back, No, N-O-O-O-O. And his autocorrect changed it to moo. <laughs> And, buddy, you better believe that what went from a delicate, gentle, kind, loving conversation. The tongue is like that. What we say can change things in a heartbeat. People can go from kind and loving to cruel and hateful in a moment. And we can, too. We can, too. We see the tongue in its dichotomy, and then he speaks of the tongue in its duplicity. Verse number 10 He says, and he repeats it. He says, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. And then we see a word of repudiation. He says, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. I find it fascinating that James says it that way. And here's why. I believe James was aware of the indwelling of the Holy Ghost. He was present, no doubt, at the day of Pentecost. I believe he understood that when a person trusted Christ, they became a new creature. But certainly James probably did not have the same clarity of the concept of the old man and the new man that God would later reveal through the Apostle Paul. All James understood was there's certain behavior that belongs in the life of a Christian and there's certain behavior that doesn't. And he says that as believers, our tongue should be a conduit of the wisdom and will of God, not of cursing and not of berating, and not of cruelty. He says, my brethren, these things ought not so to be. He looked at it and he said, something's wrong with this picture. A Christian that cannot control their... Listen, when we get saved, the Spirit of God takes up residence in our heart and life. And when we yield to the leading of the Spirit of God, we yield every part and fiber of our being. Paul talked about it and said we ought to yield our members as instruments of righteousness, not as instruments of unrighteousness. The only way you're going to govern your tongue is by surrendering it to the leading of the Spirit of God as you do every other facet of your life. James says this isn't right, but then he gives us this profound principle. He speaks of the unredeemed tongue, and this, I think, sums it up, and this is where we'll close tonight. He spoke of the power of the tongue when he spoke of the unbridled tongue, the potential of the tongue when he spoke of the untrammeled tongue, the passions of the tongue when he spoke of the untamed tongue. And then, finally, he tells us the problem with the tongue when he speaks of the unredeemed tongue. He says this, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs, 
so can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. To sum it up, I think what James is saying is, you know, it just don't make sense that God could take up residence in a person's life and it not change the way they talk. It just doesn't make sense. But here's the reality. We do have a divided nature and a divided heart. I think what James was observing, he had observed at the church of Jerusalem, he had no doubt observed in his own life, was that there is this constant and, and ever-present internal struggle to be governed by God's Spirit. We must consistently, as Paul said, crucify ourselves and die daily if we are going to see the Spirit of God have the right of way in our hearts and minds. And he really, and again, I don't even know how much of it James understood, but the Holy Ghost sure knew it when he said it. Here's what he's saying. He's saying things cannot do that which is contrary to their nature. Now, though he speaks of the tongue in a personified way for for uh, literary purposes, he speaks of the tongue as though it's its own entity just operating independent of the person that bears it. We know that's not true. Uh, a tongue doesn't just do something on its own. If you're, listen, if, if you speak a lie, if your tongue speaks a lie, your heart uttered it first. If your tongue speaks a cruel word, your heart uttered it first. And what he's saying is this, that in the same way that a fountain can't put forth sweet water and bitter, in the same way that a fig tree can't bear olives or a vine can't bear figs, something can't do that which is contrary to its nature. Our tongue is still a part of this sin-stained body of the old man of the Adamic nature, and as such, the only way we're going to get governance of it is to yield it to the Spirit of God. The great acid test, and this is what I think... Really, James is saying back in verse number two, when he says, if any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. He's saying this. If a person has their tongue under control, it's a good indication that they have their whole being under control. And by extension, if the spirit of God has a hold of your words, it's a good indication he has a hold of the rest of you. You know, the Bible says about death, that death is the last enemy that shall be defeated. Well, when it comes to the human nature being brought under subjection to the leading of the Spirit of God, I think James would say that the tongue is the last enemy to be defeated. God can get a hold of every area of your life before he can get a hold of your words, your tongue. So, preacher, what should I do then as a response to that? You know, focus on it first. Focus on it first. You'll find that if you'll submit your words to God and try to gauge and guard carefully what you say and say only, I pray it all the time from the pulpit. And you've heard other preachers pray, Lord, help me to not say anything I ought not say and help me not to shy away from anything that I should say. You know why? Because if God can get a hold of my words, he'll have a hold of my spirit. He'll have, have a hold of all of me. And the flip side of that is true as well. There's a lot of people that probably have most things under control in their life, but their tongue is still out of control. They still grumble, complain, gossip, criticize. They still have that tongue. Listen, we can tame all kinds of things, but that tongue is hard to tame. So if you can surrender that to God, if you can put that before the throne of the Lord, and if you can crucify that, you've gone a long way towards God being able to use your whole life. And you may have everything else worked out in your life, but here's the question. Are your words under control of the Spirit of God? 